Hello and welcome to another episode of Polar Times, bringing you science and stories from literally the coolest places on the planet. As you probably already guessed, I'm not Jack, who did host the previous episodes. Today you are here with me and my name is Alexandra. I'm hosting today's episode. I am, as well as Jack, part of the Apex podcast group and you might well hear me sometimes in the future as a host as well. So last episode, Jack took you to the Peary Macmillan Arctic Museum in Maine. And today I will take you shortly to another planet, namely to Mars. My guest today is Nana Carlson. She is a glaciologist at the Geological Survey of Denmark in Greenland. We are talking about Nana's way into polar science, how she went from planetary science ending up in glaciology now, how research about glaciers on Mars can benefit from polar science here on Earth, and how our knowledge about glaciers can teach planetary scientists to, to learn about glaciers on Mars, how the ice is behaving and flowing and what is different. And we also catch up about the fieldwork in Greenland and in Antarctica. We also talk about inclusivity in science and what difficulties you can have as a woman in polar research. Nana also shares very valuable advice how to pursue a career in science, especially for graduate students and early career scientists. So yeah, welcome to Polar Times. Let's jump directly to the interview. I hope that you enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of Polar Times, the podcast that brings you science and stories from literally the coolest places on the planet. You are here with me today, Alexandra Zur, and on today's episode, I am joined by Nana Carlson. She's a glaciologist focusing on glacier studies, geophysics, and glacier ice on Mars, with fieldwork experience in the Arctic and in Antarctica. Thanks for coming back to Polar Times, and I hope that you enjoy today's episode. Please welcome to the stage my guest this week, Nana Carlson. Hi, Nana. How is it going? Thank you for coming to Polar Times. Hello, Alexandra. Thank you for inviting me to join you. I'm excited to see what we'll be talking about. So this is the first section of the podcast. We call it the icebreaker because this is where we get to know you, our guest. So who are you and how did you come to Polar Life? Yes, so my, my entry into polar life actually started with Mars, so planetary science. Um, when I started university, I did physics and geophysics um, as my undergraduate degree and master's degree. And I thought I was going to do meteorology or oceanography, something like that. But then I attended this course where they introduced the fact that there was ice sheets on Mars and Mars had a climate system. And I thought that was the coolest thing I had ever heard. And I decided I was going to study ice on Mars. So I did that for my master's degree. And then I realized that in order to study climate on another planet, 
you need either very specific access points, so to speak. So if you are living in a country where there's a long history of mass science or planetary science, maybe you can have some access points through that to the community. But if you're like me, I live in Denmark, I'm Danish. With, we don't have a very big mass science group. I thought about how, what could be my access point into planetary science. So I decided to do a PhD about West Antarctica rather than trying to get a PhD in Mars. Eventually it came down to, to the fact that in order to contribute something to the understanding of the climate processes on Mars, I needed to have a, a knowledge about climate processes here on Earth. That was how I felt. So I went to the UK and did my PhD in the UK uh, about West Antarctica. And then I came back to Denmark and did a postdoc focusing on Greenland. And then I did a postdoc in Germany focusing on Antarctica. So you can say I have kind of covered both poles uh, in the Earth's climate system and also the poles in the Mars climate system. And during this process of doing postdocs in different places and switching between poles, I realized that I actually very much enjoy the physical aspect of glaciology. So being out there in the field and seeing the processes that I am investigating. And that sort of strengthened my resolve to get to know something about what's happening on Earth in order to understand what's happening on Mars. So right now I'm, I'm back in Denmark after my years of travel around and I work at the Geological Survey of Denmark and Greenland as a senior scientist. And my main focus for the past several years has been Greenland and the Greenland Ice Sheet. So now I do mass polar science a little bit on the side. I still try to keep in touch with the community. But my main focus now is, is Greenland and, and what's happening in Greenland today. Interesting. I guess it's a bit more difficult to do some fieldwork on, on Mars and see how the glaciers there look like. But uh, in, in what kind are they similar to what we see in Antarctica or in Greenland? And how do you know about them, actually? Yeah, that's, a, that's all good questions. So we, we have known, actually, for a number of years, like decades, that there were some kind of um, surface feature, surface features on the surface of Mars that looked like debris-covered glaciers, so like glaciers that are covered in dust or rocks or something. And just visually from imagery from the planet, they, they look like a rock glacier or a debris-covered glacier. So we've known that for many decades, that there is something there that looks similar. But it wasn't until within the last 10, 15 years when we had radar data, so ice penetrating radar signals that could see through this dust cover into the ice and actually confirm that it is water ice that we're looking at. So they are quite similar to, to glaciers on Mars, with the exception that they're covered in dust. And we know that from, from these um, radar instruments. There are also, of course, a lot of differences. Firstly, the gravity is less in, on Mars. So there's less of a pull in terms of deformation. There's also a lot of things we don't know. We think they're probably quite old. Maybe some of them are millions of years old, but we don't know. And we also don't know what happens to ice when it just sits in a place for millions of years. What's happening to the ice crystals? Um, 
how is the shape of the ice responding to this state over such a long period? So there are really a lot of things that we don't know. But we do know that they seem to be mainly made of water ice. Do you know if they form and behave in the same way? So do you see snowfall and are the glaciers also sliding and moving like we, like the physics or the glaciers do on Earth? So right now we know there's very little water in the atmosphere. So if there is snow, it's less than maybe one millimeter per year. So it's not really a snow event like we would know it here on Earth, of course. And because they're covered in dust, both the, both the small glaciers um, and also the big ice caps. We don't think there's a lot of exchange. So the snow that falls on them probably just disappears again. It doesn't become a glacier like we see here on, on Earth. And I think that's one of the main differences at the moment, at least, that here on Earth, glaciers and ice sheets are sort of big uh, transport belts. So we deposit something on the top of a glacier and then it's slowly transported down to the end of the glacier and then either it melts off or it uh, somehow disappears through the ocean or whatnot. But on Mars, there doesn't seem to be this transport mechanism going on because it's, it's covered in dust. So, so there is no transport, at least at the moment, of, of ice. So in that sense, it doesn't flow because it doesn't transport things. But just looking at them visually, we can see it does deform. So it is a soft material and it deforms in the same way as ice deforms here on Earth. So if we just leave uh, a glacier uh, completely alone on Earth and we don't put snow, snow on it or, and we don't take away anything at the end of the glacier, it still deforms and that's the same on Mars. So it's, it's a soft material that just sort of flows out, for example, down a, a mountainside. That's super cool. And it's so interesting that we actually can learn so much from just uh, looking at pictures and just not being there, not taking samples, what we do on Greenland and in Antarctica. Yeah. One thing I think is, is really nice is that we can see through measuring how big they are and through these uh, radar data, we know how thick they are as well. So that means we can actually say something about how it deforms and we can see that this deformation happens in the same way as it does here for the glaciers on Earth. So that's a, a, that's a really nice sort of first clue into that it seems to be a, a, the same kind of behavior and we can understand them with the same kind of toolbox that we have for, for our own glaciers. Are you also doing science in developing applications for Mars expeditions, which are tested here on Earth? No, not as such. I would, I, I would love to. I think it could be really... <laughs> Could be really fun, but that is a that's a very time-consuming task, and I know people spend decades of their lives really working on making something that could fit the kind of technical specification you need to send something all the way to Mars. And of course, if you spend millions and millions of, of dollars or euros to sending something to Mars, you have to be sure it works, right? Yeah. <laughs> Can I just go to Greenland and come back next year again and uh, no. take our spare parts? <laughs> Maybe someday in the future. I also saw that you're involved in uh, many different other research projects from traverses and climate monitoring programs, hydrology studies, and uh, the famous oldest ice part 
in Antarctica, the new research project there. How did you end up in so many different research areas and what is your favorite part in polar science? Oh, that's a good question. I'm not sure I really know myself how I ended up <laughs> in so many different places. <laughs> I think maybe it comes down a little bit to my background in physics. I'm interested in knowing the processes and understanding what's driving what we observe. And then it's maybe less important where we're observing it. And for me, the, the exciting part is looking at a process, trying to understand it through mathematical modeling or through analyzing data, and then see that the same thing can be used in a different place, either in a different place on Earth or in a different planet. So I, I like building this set of tools and then applying them to different things. But how I ended up, I think, is partly really a little bit of a coincidence, right? You, When you finish your PhD or you finish a, a postdoc, um, so it's about timing. Is there some job out there with someone you would like to work with in a place where you would like to live? And that, I think, has partly also governed my career. When was I looking for jobs and what was available when I was looking? And I don't think there's any shame in that. Like people like to pretend, oh, I had this goal and I was going to go there and then I was going to go there. But actually a lot of things that happen in life in general, but also in your, in your career, will be governed by coincidences to some extent. I think it's for so many people that it just, there was this one opportunity and you just had luck and there was your supervisor asking you if you want to join some expeditions and then you get to know other people and then it just goes its way. Yeah. Or you meet someone at a conference or in a workshop and it turns out you have interest in common and, and the collaboration starts from there. And so it's, for me, it's been a very organic process, just things that have happened through meetings and, And things like that. Yeah. I think that's also one of the special things about polar science that even though your research area is maybe not connected to the area of other scientists, but you can still apply your methods and, and your knowledge. And then it's just so interesting how you can connect your research interests and uh, find a new project or develop a new idea. And somehow you are finding out something new which you haven't thought about it before. Yeah. And I think overall it, it strengthens the whole um, polar science community, this flexibility or knowledge interaction. Because if, if we were just looking at one ice sheet or just looking at one glacier, then we would never evolve or, or you know, learn from other people. And I think that's also what I enjoy with the polar sciences. We could have a problem and it turned out someone has had a similar problem, but for a completely different part of the world. <laughs> And in the end, you can just uh, help each other and then uh, everybody is better in the end. Yeah. Or at least you can uh, exchange knowledge about what doesn't work, which is also useful <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> oh, that's very true. <laughs> <laughs> so you have been on a lot of fieldwork. What is your fieldwork consisting right now and related to your current position? Um, so my fieldwork right now is centered around our weather stations. So the Geological Survey has 14 or more weather stations in Greenland, and we have to go check on them. Usually we check on them every other year. 
So in 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 a sense, it's it's quite different from what the the fieldwork I was used to before I joined the geological survey because I used to be part of more of an ice coring community where the field seasons were quite long, but you were in one place and you were working in a big team extracting an ice core, for example. But in this kind of fieldwork, we go out two people, we stay in a small town in Greenland, we have a helicopter and we fly out and check our weather stations and we fly back to the hotel at night and have a nice warm meal. <laughs> That sounds so comfortable. It is very comfortable. <laughs> and I'm, sometimes I think this is not really field work, is it? <laughs> um, but it is, it is nice in the sense that it's easy for, for those who, for example, have obligations at home. That means they can't be away for, you know, five, six weeks, which is often the case, especially for Antarctic field work, where you have to go yeah. for quite long And it also means that we get to see different parts of Greenland because in, I've been to different settlements and towns, both on the east coast of Greenland. And yeah, that's been really amazing to see that. So you've covered more or less uh, all of parts of Greenland. I saw that you had been to the northern parts and uh, to the eastern parts and on the ice sheet itself and at the coast. So yeah, you saw quite a lot of the diversity in Greenland. Yes, I've been really lucky. I've seen many parts of Greenland, and it's all beautiful. I can attest to that for sure. You already mentioned that it's easier for people who cannot stay away from home for such a long time. Is that in general an issue in, in polar science that you just have to go to the field and you have to be flexible and go to the yeah. field and spend a lot of time away from home? I think so. I, I mean, I, it takes a certain kind of personality, firstly, I think, to think that, yeah, I'm going to be away for six weeks. It's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I enjoy it. I, I love it. But I think there should be room for everyone in polar sciences. Also people who might not be willing or able to be away from home for that long, for whatever reason. And I hope it's changing a little bit. But there have been in the past kind of a some attitudes towards, oh, you know, to be a proper, especially in glaciology, I think, you know, to be a proper glaciologist, you have to be out there in a tent for months and really suffer. And, you know, I, I don't think it has to be like that. And I really hope that the community works towards making fieldwork more inclusive for everyone. Yeah, when I think about the, all of the stories which I heard about fieldwork before I went on my first field expedition, it always sounded like it's cold, you have to eat a lot, you have to work hard and long hours, and uh, there are a lot of men. That was more or less the, the picture I had in the beginning. <laughs> and my first field season, the first weeks, actually just proved that picture. <laughs> so it was a, an old camp with a lot of men. <laughs> And uh, yeah, I think it was just interesting to see how that, in my case, changed during the season. So there are some roles which are more for younger people and roles for older people. So there's kind of a, a sectioning. Yeah, there are some just different roles for different people, it seems like. And I'm just wondering, is that always the case in every part of uh, polar science? I can only speak for one, of, mm -hmm. one specific part. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. I think there, there's still some kind of idea or perception that, you know, this is a really tough job. We need some tough guys to 
to do this. And I think we need to rethink how we do the field work, because in my opinion, a lot of the things that are, you know, really tough for tough guys can be changed and made for everyone. So I think it's it's a lot about perceptions rather than actual ability of what people can or cannot do. But I, I, I agree with you. I have observed the same thing about you are not necessarily assigned, but there's some kind of um, expectation of what kind of role you are able to fulfill based on your age or gender or even background, which country you're from, your training and so on. And I, yeah, I think it's getting better, but I, I agree with you that you still see these stereotyped roles sometimes. I can take, for example, a, a very small example in my own department. These weather stations have a battery box in order to run throughout the year. And that battery box weighs 50 kilos, which that's heavy. <laughs> quite heavy. And even two people, that's still quite heavy. And if you have to carry it, and a lot of the stations are on ice, basically an ice surface, so it's slippery, it's uneven, it's not very nice. So instead, now we've just started designing it in such a way that we can open the battery box and take out individual components. So maybe we then have to carry, you know, three times the distance, but then you're only carrying 15 kilos. And it's small changes like this that it should just be part of the norm that you, you make your equipment or your camp in a way so that no one has to carry 50 kilos. <laughs> Regardless of, of whether you're a tough guy or, you know, whatever. It's also just for everybody, even though if you're a guy and really tough, then it's also better for your back if you don't have to carry 50 kilo on a slippery ice surface. For sure. But yeah. And it's better for everyone that there is not just one person who can carry this box, but everyone can actually carry it. Yeah. Was it especially made for a more accessibility of fieldwork or was it just uh, convenient to redesign the box? I think it, it, we, we came to the realization that actually, even though it is physically possible for most of us to carry it, 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 it's a safety hazard because if you slip and fall, you can really pull your back out. And that's, you know, Not good, firstly, and also really expensive <laughs> for your employer if, if you get injured while you're in the field. Oh, yeah. I can imagine that you have to be flown out by a helicopter and then uh, you have to cancel your field work for the last part. Yeah. yeah. We'll see. I hope, uh, I hope the change will come for most polar field work situations, but we'll, we will see. We'll keep pushing for it, right? Yes. I know that there are also many... Um, initiatives to promote women in science or especially women in polar science because it's also if you just listen about or if you think about polar explorers they're always men of course it was a different time yeah but it's always a man who's your role model if you want to become a, a polar scientist yeah yeah and I still that's another problem that that's how you you are perceived still today if you are a polar scientist that means you must be a man When I, when I worked for the, um, for the Alfred Wegener Institute, we got given all this really nice field clothing. You know, it's so nice and warm. It's really nice quality, but it's all made for men. And if you are a tall woman, there's nothing that fits you, right? Because all the clothing for 
the tall men is made for men who are size XX large. And at first you think, oh, this is a little bit comical, you know, look at my big jacket. But actually it's a, it's a problem, it's a safety problem because you get cold. It's, you know, it's, it's not okay <laughs> that you, they give you things that don't fit you. It's, it's a safety concern. Yeah, it's not only that you get cold. If your trousers are too big, then you can just not walk properly. And then the, the risk of falling down is... I also bought a pair of gloves for myself before going to the field, just to be on the safe side in case the gloves are not fitting or a bit too big, because I have really small hands <laughs> yeah. compared to, to a woman in my size. When I was at the equipment for my polar expedition, yeah, I realized that the gloves are just not fitting. Yeah. I'm not that short, so there, it, there has to be some problems for, for people who are smaller even. Yeah. And I think, again, when I was younger, I thought, oh, yeah, whatever. That's fine. But, I mean, now after many expeditions, I, I got frost nips several times in my fingers, and now my fingers are really sensitive to the cold. Mm. And that would be with me for the rest of my life, you know, this this extra sensitivity to the cold. And I'm not saying this to complain, but I'm just saying that these small things, the small things that you think when you start on an expedition, oh, it's fine, I don't, it's I just a few, you know, my hands will be a little bit cold. That will follow you for decades if you make a, a stupid decision. <laughs> <laughs> I could imagine that you just need some some women uh, who just speak up or some some movements to change that. I guess if you're just starting as a, a master student or a graduate student, a PhD student, you're not aware of the fact that you can just speak up and say something. Yeah, and yeah, it's, I, yeah you need need someone who's a little bit older to to complain about it and maybe many to complain about it but i also think it's a problem that then you had to buy your own for your own money right that's not okay yeah i just didn't think about another idea i heard that they are planning to change the, the clothes or that they are planning to make some female size jackets and trousers and and stuff like that i i haven't heard if that already made it to the institute And I don't know how that it's in, in other countries and other institutes. How is it at the, your institute? Do you also get equipment or do you have to buy it yourself and then you get reimbursed? Yes, we, we just buy our own and we get reimbursed. So in a way that's easier because then you can buy what you want. And that also fits. Hopefully it also fits. Well, I mean, it's actually difficult to find clothing that fits women generally in, in outdoors, sort of extreme outdoors, I find I didn't know that. I haven't bought my own polar equipment, so mm. I don't know that. <laughs> But I can imagine that Denmark is also not the, the coldest, coldest place. <laughs> no, that is also true. <laughs> But I think there's a lot of the clothing that you can then buy is made for like skiing, maybe, and things mm. like that. But that's not like if you're in a in a fieldwork situation where your main job is just to sit still and count something in minus 20 degrees then skiing will clothing will not keep you warm. it's not enough no it's not enough no. <laughs> it's meant to keep you warm when you ski right? yeah i think that's uh that's a big point where polar science can still develop and change a bit to just get more inclusive uh, about women yeah i think it has 
It has improved, I think. Yeah, I'm also happy to see that they're getting more and more women as leaders of polar research institutes. Yeah, I think it's just it's it's a it's a difficult subject for someone like me who is white, European, obviously grew up in a country where access to healthcare and a university education and all these things just provided. And especially in a society where we have very little diversity in terms of uh, different ethnic backgrounds. I think you can, you can probably easily become a little bit blinded in terms of, of being aware of that there are other kinds of people out there, people with different backgrounds who could also contribute to glaciology. But they're not there, you don't see them because they, 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 there are so few people who, who don't come from a, a Western background doing glaciology. And then on top of that, when you, like me, have grown up in a society that's very white, I don't even realize that these people are missing. So I'm, I'm trying to educate myself into thinking that actually there are people missing that should be here, that their voices should be heard in polar science. But it's like unschooling yourself from your whole childhood experience of basically never encountering a person of color. <laughs> right? Because that's, that's the kind of upbringing I had in, in, in a small town in Denmark. But I really hope that, that that's something that will change as well, that, that we all become more aware of these voices that are not so uh, loud at the moment, but we should make room for them. And that will make our discipline richer, I think. Is this only a matter of accessibility or also money-wise that we just have more research grants and communities in our countries and other countries just don't provide that for their scientists? Yeah, I think so polar science is really expensive. Yeah. It's, I mean, the countries who have stations in Antarctica, you need to be a big player. You need to have the money and the, the infrastructures to support that. And it's coming, there are more countries now who are establishing stations, but they're still, you know, the, dominated by the big few Western countries with a lot of money behind it. And so I think that's part of it. You need a, a foot in the door, so to speak, to even to get started. I guess it's, if you're from a country where you have other problems, sort of directly or indirectly from climate change, uh, drought or flooding, access to drinking water, things like that. Do you then solve those problems or do you go to Antarctica? I mean, I, if I was the government of, of such a country, I know what I would focus on, right? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> But that doesn't mean that, I, you know, I don't think that, I think polar science should be for everyone and for all the countries. And I, I think that's why an organization like Apex where all countries have a space if they wish to, and you can invite some dialogue or some collaborations across borders and across continents is really valuable. And, and I think that means the, the generations that are coming now have a different kind of network and a different feel for um, polar signs in different countries than, for example, 10, 15 years ago, where, where that just didn't exist. Before I joined APEX, I was also not aware of the variety of polar research institutes around the world. And then I saw that there are 27 national committees. I was totally 
stunned by the variety and all their places. It was really nice to see that there are also people engaging in, in polar science. I could imagine that uh, our current situation and moving conferences from on-site to virtual could already be a step forward to more inclusiveness in that respect. People who are not living in Europe, they can attend conferences without paying a lot of money. Do you see there an opportunity for more? I mean, it's only collaboration and discussing. It's not going to the field. I think yes and no. So the virtual conferences, I think, are really good in, in that sense that you can you can go wherever you are, so to speak. You, you can sit at home, perhaps in the middle of the night if the time zone doesn't fit. <laughs> but you can attend without so much money and without thinking about visa and all kinds of permits to enter a country and things like that. But at the same time, my experience is that these conferences, the, the presentations and the questions is just a small part of it. The main part is meeting someone, talking to that person, having a cup of coffee in a cafe somewhere and, and go through the questions that you're struggling with and, and work out a project together, things like that. And that is so hard to do virtually, I find. Yeah. Maybe it's it's easier, maybe it will become easier. And I think we can probably learn something from, for example, the gaming industry with these big online collaborative games where the communication seems to flow so easily and, and there's an established form of exchange that we just, we're just not there yet in, in an academic setting. So maybe it will come. But I do feel like if, if we end up in a situation where a meeting is part virtual and part in person, then we will have the same situation that the countries with a lot of money will send out scientists who will then interact and mingle and form new collaborations. And those collaborations will stay within the rich countries, so to speak. Yeah. And everyone else will be watching from their home. Yeah, that's true. I also agree that making collaborations or meeting new people online is so far still difficult. That's a really big task for the future to make that happen and to make it a bit more natural to also as an undergrad, just reach out to someone and don't be afraid of having a stupid question. Yeah, but I did see at least uh, for those virtual conferences I've attended uh, this past year, that there are more questions and also more questions from early career scientists than usual when you're in a big room with 200 people. And, you know, it takes a lot of courage to put your hand up and say, I have a question. But writing it in a chat, you remove some of those barriers. And that was, I think, was a really nice part of, of these virtual conferences that you could, you could really feel more people engaging because it was less intimidating. Yeah, I can relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't raise my arm in front of 200 people and ask a question. <laughs> that brings us to the last bit of the podcast. We call it the Polar Plug, where we give you, our guests, a chance to talk about something for a few minutes without me interrupting. What are your plugging thoughts today? So I have been thinking about what I would have liked to know when I started my career, so to speak, when I finished my PhD a bit more than 10 years ago, not really completely having a plan, but knowing I wanted to stay in academia. And I, would, I think I would have liked to know that everything is possible 
so to speak. You can pursue these big dreams, you can do it, but it comes at a cost, there's a cost at everything. And you need to think about what you're willing to pay to get what you want. Are you willing to go abroad? Are you willing to lose uh, close relationships with friends or family because you're constantly moving around? Are you willing to sacrifice weekends, holidays to get that extra couple of hours in? All these things. And I think that's fine if you do want to do that and do want to travel a lot or work really hard to get that. That's absolutely fine. But it's better to do it knowing that there is a cost and knowing what that cost is. And in hindsight, I think I would have maybe hoped that I was a little bit more aware of that cost and the price that comes with, with, with moving around, for example. And then I would say uh, specifically to the women that you don't get anything unless you ask for it. And I spend, especially the early years of my career, thinking, oh, they, they know I'm interested, so they will ask me if, if they want me to join. But they don't know you're interested. You have to tell them. You have to tell your supervisor, I would like to go to this conference. You have to tell your health department, I want to do this management course. I want to go on this expedition. And then have some good arguments for why you should go on this expedition or go to this conference. But if you don't ask for it, you don't get it. And I wish someone had told me that earlier. Those are great words. Thank you. And very motivating for me in my third year of my PhD. I'm about to finish and think about what is coming next. Yeah, it's a difficult situation always. At least I found in the beginning of my PhD, my head was so full of just writing it up and finishing everything that I didn't feel like I had room in my head to think about the future or where I wanted to go. Yeah, you have to find a mentor or someone to talk about these things, I, I find, that are outside your department, you know, someone who can see from a little bit from a distance, let's say. Do you have a good mentor during your PhD time? I think I would have liked to have someone maybe more outside my group. That would have been nice if I had known if I had someone not immediately in, in, my, in my small scientific circle at the time. Yeah, I think that would have been good. But you don't, you don't know that right? until afterwards. So that brings us to the end of another episode of Polar Times. Thank you so much for listening and coming back. If you would like to get in contact with us, ask a question for a polar person or recommend a guest, you can email us at thesearepolartimes at gmail.com. You can also tweet Apex at polar underscore research. So give us a note, rate, review, or give us a five-star recommendation on your podcast app. All it is to thank my guests for this week. Thank you, Nana, for being in our podcast, Polar Times. It was nice to have you. by the host and any guests are entirely their own. Do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other host institution.